Hey guys, before we get started today, wanted to let you know about a new podcast. ESPN is in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions to present Soup with Coop. Cooper Manning invites players and coaches from across sports to share stories and laughs while enjoying a bowl of his guest's favorite soup. I don't know what my favorite soup is. Maybe split pea? When the soup is finished, the conversation ends. That's Soup with Coop. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Mina Kimes Show for Jim Lenny, the only NFL show where one of the hosts thinks tails never fails to communicate how he's feeling. That's Lenny. His tail's wagging right next to me, so he's in a good mood. Um, he's probably in a good mood because we have a new guest today, a great guest, a perfect guest for an absolutely bonkers week of NFL news. Also to preview the, the AFC South, that was ostensibly the point of this podcast, but uh, Nora Princiati from The Ringer, are you exhausted? <laughs> I was, Mina, before I found out that I am now sort of electronically in the presence of Lenny, which, no offense, was like 80% of the reason that I wanted to do this. Um, and I just mm. feel very honored to be with you, but with both of you, really. You got to bring your A game now for Lenny. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. But Lenny's presence has energized me, um, <laughs> even though that's a lie. I am fundamentally exhausted. This Okay, so... Like I said, we're going to talk about the AFC South. I'm really excited to talk about the AFC South. Me too. The last 48 hours in the NFL have just been insanity. And I want to start by talking. So I thought we would come on and talk about the Deshaun Watson suspension. But then Tuesday morning, we're taping right, by the way, on Tuesday afternoon, which will be relevant when we talk about the Deshaun Watson suspension. The NFL comes down with another bombshell that may or may not be tied to the Deshaun Watson suspension in a field process. Um... So the big news of today is that the Miami Dolphins will have to forfeit their first round draft pick in 2023, their third rounder in 2024, and Stephen Ross, their owner, is being suspended through October 17th. Uh, They have to pay a small fine. This is all because the league found that the team tampered, essentially, with Tom Brady. They didn't just tamper with him. They tampered with him for several years. Now, Nora, I, I'm sure you know Ben Volin in Boston. He mm-hmm. reported this story in April, and, like, nobody really paid attention. Like, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but it was after the Brady retirement and then unretirement. Um, so he reported that, you know, actually Brady was intending to go to the Dolphins as a player coach, as a workaround, and then eventually become their quarterback, and it all blew up with the Flores stuff. And it was like, to me, I was like, oh, my God. And, oh, well, he also reported, I think, but believe that they wanted Sean Payton to be the coach. Right. Which is part, part of the tampering, too. So, But then it kind of goes away. And now, boom, the NFL says all of this happened. There's a part about Brian Flores, too, that I want to get to in a minute. But what was your reaction to what they actually punished the Dolphins for? Well... <laughs> So it is. I I found Roger Goodell's statement um, in terms of describing, you know, how unprecedented the level of inappropriate conduct in in their conversations and just the level of tampering was. I found that striking just because Roger doesn't typically use that type of strong language in in directing it at an owner. Um, So that felt notable. I have gone back and forth in the last couple of hours over how much I can really get myself riled up about tampering because you've Mm. been to the combine. I've been to the combine. Now something happening over the course of a week in Indiana is a little bit different than like this years long, you know, dance partnership with Tom Brady over how he could maybe finagle himself into 
the Dolphins organization in, in one of all those different ways. I do think it's very interesting that like none of this is coming down on Brady himself. I don't quite get yes. how that could be, but it also made me think that, you know, I, I was in Tampa last week and Brady's walking around. He's got Julio Jones, like Kyle Rudolph is there basically being like, even before Gronk retired, Tom Brady said, get down here. And I said, how quickly can I do it? And he's just like, he has sort of like gone God mode. Like he just wants to do everything. He wants to control everything. He's like mad with power. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think mad is the operative word because I don't think this would have even happened. Um, let's say he actually pulls it off. So uh, Jeff Darlington, well, this is citing the league here. He says current policy stipulates that a current player coach could have a financial interest in his or her club but only under an agreement affirmed by a vote of 32 teams. Like, we think the rest of the NFL would have been okay with that? Um, no! It seems, a little bit, it seems a little bit unlikely and far-fetched. I have to say, I also don't, like, this doesn't get my hackles up from a morality standpoint. I don't really care. Um, I do think it is interesting that Brady did not get punished for it. I do wonder if that's a little bit of um, ball don't lie with all the stuff that Brady's been <laughs> dealt with for the NFL. But, um... <laughs> The uh, we'll get to the Flores stuff in a second. The, the the one thing Nora and you with your background reporting the Patriots perhaps can speak to this. I found it striking that it went back to 2019, which of course was when he was on the Patriots. And the fact that this was even a thing back then, I feel like probably speaks to the level of dis dissatisfaction, which was widely reported on or speculated on at the time, but that Brady was pretty unhappy with how the team was treating him at the end of his tenure there. Yeah, I mean, I think in in that regard. It actually makes a lot of sense to me, frankly, because I think he was just sort of dreaming of where could I go that would be different from this. Um, I don't want to be non-specific here because uh, the information is important. But uh, Bruce Beal, who is not Stephen Ross, but who is the other, I think, limited partner there um, who had a lot of communication with Brady. He has like serious Boston ties. I don't know if he lives there full time or if he's just super involved in, in Boston organizations, but he's like in the mix in new England. So I can sort of see how that would happen. Um, but I, I think he just, he wanted out. He's known Steven Ross for a long time. I, it, I think we underestimate how much just all of these people talk on a regular basis. Yeah. And again, like, I don't want to minimize the transgression here. I, I do think that of the two transgressions that were addressed, this is getting headlines because Tom Brady's involved and because it's sort of like subterfuge and dramatic. I think the tanking stuff is like a lot more sort of worth yes. actually caring well, about. But it, it yeah, did go back a long time. Um, but I think part of why he would have been talking about it then just had to do with sort of who he was in conversations with and in rooms with and, and had a relationship with. Yeah. And one last note on the football side of this, I, I do will say the big winner today is uh, I, I joked that it was Tua non, but um, the dolphins have less ammunition to move on from Tua. just throwing that out there. Cause this was, all, well, that was always a subplot with the, this season in Tua is them having all of these picks next year and they still have picks. Um, but you know, it just makes life, a, it just makes it a little bit harder for that to happen. All right. The tanking stuff is the more serious stuff. And that is kind of, I think where my, my hackles do get up. Your hackle, that's what happens, right? Hackles get up. Hackles. I think so. One's hackles rise. That sounds I'm, right. I'm hackling. I'm hackled. So, um, the NFL in their announcement statement also basically concludes that 
Stephen Ross is not guilty of tanking, uh, which is an allegation made by the team's former coach, Brian Flores, um, as part of his bombshell lawsuit. So they say that, but then they acknowledge a couple of things, one of which I, I tweeted this. Um, I'll just, I'm just going to read it. So, so they say, so, okay, well, let me, yeah, let me just read it. I, I think this is probably the best way to go about it. Item number two, on a number of occasions during the 2019 season, Mr. Ross, the owner, Stephen Ross, expressed his belief that the Dolphins' position in the upcoming 2020 draft should take priority over the team's win-loss record. These comments were made most frequently to team president and CEO Tom Garfinkel, but are also made to general manager Chris Greer, SVP Brandon Shore, and coach Flores. Nora, how is that not him saying we want to <laughs> What? <laughs> what? Uh, am I crazy? No, there's no other reading of those statements. I, I And it seems like they go on to essentially say like, oh, Brian Flores had a spine and didn't act yes. on it. And therefore, Stephen Ross is not going to be punished for, for actively leading a, a tank job. So basically, he's not guilty of tanking because the coach he employed who was suing him was too moral to stop his plan of tanking, which is what he accused him of. It seems very circular. Uh, they do also note that the 100,000, the... Um, report or Flores's allegation that Ross offered to pay him $100,000 for each game lost was a joke. So I think that's how you get out of everything now is just say, hey, I was kidding. I was kidding. Just yeah, kind of put it, say things lulls. in a jokey way. Peak lulls. Um, I, I guess this bothers me because, you know, I think the league wants it. Well, certainly the Dolphins want this to be takeaway. There's no truth to what Brian Flores said. Stephen Ross put out a very aggressive statement saying he's cleared of all of that. And I just, that's just not true in my reading. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know how else to take that. I, I don't, I, the question is just like, is this completely over? It, it kind of seems like it is. It just seems like yeah. that's the punishment and, and now it's done. The thing that's striking to me in that is that the NFL historically, like the thing that gets gets them hankled, what did we decide on that? More hackles, than anything gets, else. Gets hackled, hackles hackled? <laughs> yeah. Well, they get heckled um, by me. <laughs> Well, before they get hackled, their hackles get up more than in any other situation when the competitive integrity of the league gets called into question. Yeah. And it really seems like it's still in question by any sort of objective, just like looking at the facts that they presented. But it also seems like we're just all moving on here and the punishment is the punishment. So other than, I suppose, a tiny kernel of vindication for Brian Flores... Um, at least in in Goodell's statement that it was his, you know, competitive drive that sort of kept them on track in that way. Although I suppose he also doesn't really feel vindicated just by the, the I would say, lenience of the punishment. I don't know that we can hold the same conclusions that we held about how seriously they take those issues going yeah. forward, just because I, I'm just surprised that... Um, even relative to the Brady stuff, like it, it just seemed like the tanking issues were really second fiddle, which surprised me. And I think it's because tanking is not black and white. Like, um, you know, we think of tanking as like trying to lose, but there's shades to it, right? Which is, it, I find it totally plausible that Stephen Ross did say these things as the NFL found he did as a means of saying not necessarily, hey, let's go out and play cover zero on every down right. and just call the call the bad plays guys no it means like hey 
you know, like maybe we can try to, you know, get some rookies in the mix. Maybe we're not going to trade for, you know, even if we're in contention for free agents. That I would say is, and, but guess what? I'm That's thinking still, so much about our future yeah. and you can't have a bright yes. future without prioritizing the draft. And I really want that to be central to our goals and our philosophy and blah, 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 right. blah. Like it's easy for us means, to come up with how it would happen. It means the same thing. It means the same thing. It's just a different approach. And it's, by the way, an approach that other teams do all the time. Um, you know, uh, Ross is just being accused of saying the quiet part out loud. Um, and then joking about it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I guess that's the only thing I wanted to wrap with there on that story, which is just like, this is not, I don't agree at all with the idea that they're all cleared of what Brian Flores alleged. And I think that's important to say. I also think, and Nora, this is kind of where we can jump to the Watson stuff. The timing of this is really fascinating. So this comes one day after the other bombshell news, which is that the NFL uh, or Judge Sue Robinson, the independent arbiter appointed by the NFL, decided that uh, Deshaun Watson should be suspended six games. And I think I saw one or some backlash saying, hey, this is while the NFL is trying to change the subject, but then we are in a pretty strange moment. And this is where I think we can kind of acknowledge the timestamp, which is the second that that suspension came down, the clock began three days for the NFL to decide whether or not to appeal and that's where we are right now is just waiting for the nfl to make that decision i'm not saying that they punish the owner to like kind of say see we punished owners too and now we're going to punish watson although maybe but you know i don't think this necessarily means that the nfl is was trying to like cover up the watson story is all yeah i think they're separate incidents i think the nfl does a lot of business in august because you're getting ready for the start of the season I think that the cases involving ownership that, and you kind of have to to read the footnotes in the Robinson report to get this, but the cases involving owners that they pointed to were, you know, uh, look, a big part of the, the Robinson report and the Watson situation is that I think, and, and the NFL seems to be arguing that everything is apples to oranges. It's an unprecedented situation. It's mm-hmm. unprecedented behavior. It has to be treated in an unprecedented way. But at least from the NFL PA's side, from Watson's defense's side, the cases that they were bringing up involving owners were not, it had, you know, it was Robert Kraft there was a little bit more similarity in terms of the kinds of things that they were talking about. I I don't know that they would have an easy time drawing a parallel between how Steven Ross is punished for tanking or tampering with Tom Brady versus Deshaun Watson's case. So I I see them as separate. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a newsy week. (laughs) Well, it's going to get even more newsy when the appeal or not. I'm like, by the way, I have like, I'm like, Dan, if you're listening, please text me if any news comes down um, at any point during the recording of this podcast. Um, because, you know, I think if it had been, I don't know, I, I, it's so arbitrary, eight, 10, whatever games, I think there probably would have been less pressure on the NFL to appeal. They're, the NFLPA, the day before the suspension came out, said, yeah, this is great, guys, don't appeal. Basically saying, don't appeal, you made this process, don't appeal. Um, but because it was six games, which... I think a lot of people, I, don't, I feel comfortable generalizing their uh, view as insufficient relative to the volume of 
the allegations against Deshaun Watson. Of course, only four of them were considered by the judge, but that's still a lot. I hate saying only four. That is four women. Um, you know, the, the, there's more pressure on Goodell now to actually do it, even though, you know, it's kind of like he has to weigh the public perception, his own views on it, whatever. The NFL has to weigh that versus are we going to like, quote unquote, undermine the new system, which, by the way, I don't think it, like they agreed to this. But before we get to that, I guess, Nora, I, I, you know, I'm kind of skipping over the actual suspension. I mean, what was your reaction when news broke yesterday and you saw the suspension and then read the report? Yeah, well, so uh, the suspension, six games, I was surprised by. I thought it would be more than that. Um, and then uh, when I read the report, I think two things stood out. One, I think I had kind of internalized this idea of, oh, there's a new process. So the NFL is sort of starting fresh here. And I mean, people talk about Roger Goodell as like the quote unquote conduct commissioner, right? When he is retired, the thing that people will think of in terms of what defined his tenure was how he dealt with behavioral issues, disciplinary Mm -hmm. issues, and all of those controversies. And I, I think I had really internalized okay, so they bargained this new process and that essentially represents a clean slate. So while it kind of required me to to rejigger how I was thinking about the process itself and, and how Sue Robinson was looking at the case when in the report she was really heavily reliant on precedent, cared a lot about following precedent, I actually think that that part of the argument I at least see the logic in it. It's hard for me to find significant fault in it in her saying, yeah, I find all of how you comported yourselves in all of these different cases in the past pretty capricious and a little bit random, but I am forced yeah. to try to make order out of that disordered situation. And if there's nothing that would have said to a player in the past that behaving in a certain way would merit a certain punishment, then I can't just pull that out of thin air. You can because you have appellate power, but mm-hmm. if that's going to happen, you have to do it, Roger. I'm not going to do that for you. I, I think that if that's the case, then Roger Goodell should use that power to do that because he's not a former federal judge. And I, I don't think that he temperamentally or uh, just sort of positionally should necessarily prioritize those precedents in exactly the same way. The second part of it that really struck me that I, I just have struggled with since and I think is really disappointing and I think if there's a failure in the report this is where it is is that she draws this really binary distinction between violent conduct and nonviolent conduct and because there is wording in the revision to the personal conduct policy that took place after the Ray Rice scandal that um the language where a minimum six game suspension is invoked involves violence, or mm-hmm. I think it's um, like sexual assault against someone incapable of giving consent by those very specific clauses. She determined essentially that Watson fell into the other category, um, which was all what she considered um, perpetrators of nonviolent conduct who had historically been given much shorter suspensions and, and she, you know, of two or three games. So she increased Watson's from there because of some of the aggravating factors like the lack of remorse and the number of incidents. 
but she did put him very cleanly in that separate group and, and had this binary. And the thing to me that's a failure in that is that distinguishing, you know, what we define as sexual violence is really hard. And I think it's okay. You know, there are advocacy groups that would say any type of sexual assault is sexual violence. Through what I looked up, most organizations like Rain that would say that would define that as a non-legal term because it is true that there are a lot of laws on the books where a violent crime or a violent act involves physical harm. And I think sometimes, you know, we want to be able to, to make a distinction if someone is really violently physically harmed just for the sake of clarity. Like it's, it's, we need to use specific language to understand what, what happens in life and in any sort of situation. But if that's going to be such a clear binary choice, which is how it was presented in the Robinson report, then I think there absolutely needs to be some understanding shown of the idea of sexual coercion or how power imbalances function to, you know, additionally victimize the the more vulnerable people and the victims in these situations. And I think that was completely missing from the report. I would like to hope, I would like to be really optimistic here and say that the counter argument that if you read the Robinson report clearly, the NFL was making the counter argument that Watson's case should not fall into any pre-established category. I would love to think that there's some better understanding of those concepts that's informing that position and that argument. I am fully aware that that's probably a little rosy, but one thing that, you know, and I will get off my soapbox here, but like something that I think has become important to me is that I feel like we talk about like any, anytime something bad is happening in the orbit of the NFL, there's a lot of, well, they're never going to get better. This is just how it is. They're going to make a billion gajillion dollars and it's all going to be the same forever. And I really don't want to do that here. I want to at least, you know, open the Overton window to a place where mm-hmm. they could try to to get better through this opportunity. I'm not saying I think it will happen, but I want to acknowledge yeah. that it's a possibility. No, it is. I mean, she also, I mean, she kind of teed up Roger Goodell to do that. So if you read the report, she basically agrees with all of the NFL's allegations, totally. right? I mean, she... And even though... Even sorry, I'm interrupting. But even though she only looked at four women, there were no evidentiary issues. She felt they met the burden of proof in any in every single allegation that they brought. The fifth one was, um, you know, didn't want to be interviewed, which is basically wasn't like a this does not meet our credibility standard. So the 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 finding section of this report, she basically just says in summary that. He, Watson, did engage in unwanted sexual contact. He knew it was unwanted. He endangered the safety and well-being of others. He, um, the NFL met the burden of proof in a civil standard for demonstrating sexual assault took place. She calls his behavior predatory, so much so that she says going forward, he has to only work with in-house massage therapists, which I hope there's safeguards in place there too as well. Um, But then, as you said, she basically cites precedent in coming down with the six games which you can say, well, precedent is not arbitrary at all. But then to your point, I find her interpretation of sexual violence or nonviolence to be arbitrary. I do. Right. And uh, like, I, I mean, I, I think you could just stop people on the street and say, hey, this person found that this 
guy touched people with his penis involuntary is that not sexual violence i think most people would disagree frankly and like you i read a lot of different definitions from different nonprofits, and i and i found this very puzzling so the idea that this is all precedent and it's 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 you know written down and inscribed and of course you had to come down that way i don't feel that way i don't think that's true and i also think that it is a little bit ironic like you bring in this woman you're supposed to revamp the process and obviously it hasn't been working and essentially she just leans on the system that you guys said wasn't working um so that's you know i understand why she did it. she's a judge whatever i'm not i'm just saying that that was something i found puzzling but then we get to the roger goodell of it all and that's kind of what we're waiting for now okay so here's the six games this woman agreed with you um but she leaned on precedent and um and in this interpretation so like nora i, I mean i I joined ESPN in 2014. The Ray Rice story was the first one I covered at ESPN. I think it's probably yeah. one of, if the not, biggest black marks on Roger Goodell's tenure as the commissioner of the NFL. It's something that I think he has tried to change, maybe mostly unsuccessfully. This is a pretty career-defining moment for him. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if he's going to take the opportunity to change precedent, which is within his powers. But um, this is this is pretty consequential stuff and i think when we talk about roger roger goodell in 10 20 30 years this is something that is going to come up yeah it's a really it's i mean i think you're right to call it career defining and i think six games it look this doesn't matter at all to the to the extent that i'm sort of wary to to talk about it but there is something about six games that seems tough because I think if I mean, I I'll speak for myself. If they appeal it and add two games, four games, I don't, I don't quite, I don't quite know what that says. I, I, I don't find satisfaction in that conclusion. That does not answer the questions about, okay. And you know, I don't mean to be sort of pearl clutching here, but like there are little kids that are going to watch that team and eventually learn about the quarterback and what does it say if someone who the league asserts believes and according to Sue Robinson has proven has done these things like what does it say when that guy walks back onto the field in week six week eight whatever the length is ultimately arbitrary no matter what I I think there's something about that year-long um recommendation that the NFL made in the first place that's sort of satisfying or like at least feels meaningful in some way but the other side of it is that going from six to indefinite suspension of at least a year like that is a big leap and and I'm pretty reluctant to buy into the argument that like oh my god Roger can't under undermine the independent arbitrator because they wrote the process to allow him to undermine the independent arbitrator if he would like so I I it's hard for me to see that as a huge deal, but it's not completely insignificant. And and so, yeah, I, I think it's a big moment for him. I'll be frank. I don't have a good sense. And I've tried to ask people like I, I just don't really know what to think about what direction this is going to go in. And I think part of that is because it's sort of a weird middle ground that that they're in just with having it come down at six games. Yeah. Uh, it is arbitrary. It is weird. It is hard to know what's right. People saying, well, what would you be happy with? What's correct? And I, I have trouble answering that question. Um, I will say, you know, just in terms of viewing like the punitive aspects of it all, he, he is really not <laughs> punished. Um, you know, we, we know obviously that 
he will only suffer $350,000 on the $230 million contract. Um, you know, and that contract, you know, yeah, it was, it was uh, structured. So he, he made less this year, but I think notably also, and this is, was the more unusual part, it says it, it um, guarantees money against future suspensions, which was unusual. Um, I thought the other thing that's worth noting is people say, well, he was suspended last year. No, he wasn't. He just didn't want to play and made money. Like, I mean, you know, it's just... Who knows what would have happened if he did want to play, but that's not a suspension. So, all right, we'll see. I mean, by the time you listen to this, the news could come out. I have no idea what it would be. Absolutely zero idea. I had no idea what the suspension would be. It, it continues to be a unprecedented and difficult to talk about at times story. Um, let's go. Let's start with a happier situation. <laughs> which, team do, which team do you think I'm going to start with after saying that? Jacksonville. I am starting with Jacksonville. The I'm vibes. so glad. The vibes coming out of Jacksonville are very positive. I think you were there, correct? I was there. Uh, they were the first stop. So I've sort of completed leg one of training camp tour, and I'm at home for a few days, um, mercifully visiting the Jets and Giants and sleeping in my own bed, and then we'll get back on the road. But the Jaguars were my very first stop of, of leg one last week. And the vibes are good. Um, let's start with the offense because that is probably the biggest vibe check on this team. Um, so, you know, so much during this whole entire offseason, well, we've talked a lot about the additions they made and that's really important. So, you know, you bring in, um, Christian Kirk, people make fun of the contract. I do think he's a good player. Zay Jones, um, the offensive line, you bring in Brandon Scherf, who's one of the better guards in the NFL. Uh, and then Evan Ingram, interestingly enough, at tight end, you get Travis Etienne back. What are you just like based on being there, what you know about Doug Peterson, the new head coach, what you know about Trevor Lawrence, how do you think this offense might look different from what we saw last year, which was atrocious? So first of all, just to go big picture, Trevor Lawrence is not in a quarterback competition right now. <laughs> like real thing that happened. Real thing real that happened thing to that happened. first overall pick. And real thing that I just like want to represent to you the experience of standing on that sideline and watching them just, you know, do like go through the route tree. And, uh, you know, Minshew's not not in the picture, so I'm not comparing the same situation, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter and it didn't matter then. Like when Trevor Lawrence throws the ball, it comes out of his hand and then immediately you hear the plop into the receiver's hands. And then the backups will, will do theirs, and that's fine. But it's just, you can hear it. You can hear the difference. Like, this guy is so good. And he has a professional coach who's not making him do silly competitions in training camp. And I think there's a lot more benefit than just that because I do think that, you know, look, with um, with Doug Peterson, with, with Press Taylor sort of running the show there, I think you can expect that offense to be one where – you know, they will make it easier on him. There will be much more motion. There will be just a lot more in terms of like having those easy buttons for him. I, I like, I don't know that I love the Scherf contract, but I like that addition just because you know they're going to, you know, they're going to run a lot of zone. He's really athletic. I actually think that offensive line is pretty good. Some of it depends on like they seem to have committed to, cam robinson maybe yeah. being able to to improve a little bit and i don't i don't quite know what to think about that but i think you have a lot of decent athletes who can 
run the scheme that we assume those guys are going to want to run. I like the receivers. They don't have a lot of depth. It's still a super young team. You know, some of the optimism is just because, like, if they win eight games, it's going to feel like they won the Super Bowl. And they won't have. And we should acknowledge that. But, like, all of that to me comes together in a way where this is going to be a competent offense, I believe, with the ability to flash just because I I really do think that Trevor Lawrence is special. And I think we're going to see things that we just did not have a chance to see last year because everything was so discombobulated. Yeah, I went back and watched a few Trevor Lawrence games culminating in the week 18 performance against the Colts, which did matter for the Colts, you remember. Sorry, Colts fans, right. to your team. And um, it was his best game of the season. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Like, I, th- I think you saw a lot of the things that made him the number one overall pick. Um, the pocket movement is very impressive for impressive for young quarterback. It's a big reason why this has been noted a lot. He had a sack rate of 4.8%, which was ninth in the NFL. That is the only metric, Nora, where Trevor Lawrence does not finish like below 20th in the NFL, but it speaks to how and good he is. Including at pressure. pressure. Right. Yes. Including how much pressure he took. So he's good with that. And then um, I think you just saw better decision-making, you know, throughout the season, he's just forcing balls, playing hero ball, desperate. Um, and, and, you, I saw him pass up on a lot of throws, especially like layered throws to the intermediate levels of the field that the Colts linebackers probably would have picked. He also missed a couple throws too. Um, but, you know, he, he, he you, I think you saw, I saw a lot of the talent there. Um, I also saw, by the way, he, he would just constantly like boot out and nobody would be open, which is, I think, probably yeah. the single biggest problem with the Jags offense last year is just no one was open. Um, so now, like you said, he's got, it's a really fun group of skill players. I think I, I've talked about Christian Kirk. He's a good player. Um, I think my only issue with this group of skill players is I don't really see anyone who wins consistently outside. It seems like pretty congested around like, you know, with Kirk, Chenault, who I think is still promising, um, ETN even, who I imagine they'll use in the slot a fair amount. And then the tight ends, it feels a little bit congested. But knowing what we know about Doug Peterson and what he probably wants to do, 12 personnel, RPOs, you know, all... <laughs> Basically, everything he did for Carson Wentz, um, I think it actually is not a bad group of skill players for that vision for this offense. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm definitely agreed there. Um, and, and in particular with the receivers, you know, Jags receivers dropped 41 passes last year. You got to think that that's not going to happen again. <laughs> and even just that makes a difference. And I can't imagine being a rookie and... and just going through that and the lack of trust you have that if you let go of a ball, somebody's going to catch it. I, I don't tend to think one of my guiding philosophies is that, you know, the collective we as the NFL commentariat are often wrong about college quarterbacks. So if one mm. is really highly rated and then comes into the NFL and isn't good, I tend to pretty quickly be like, Hey, we might've been wrong. We're wrong a lot. Yeah. I yeah, Trevor Lawrence is just not that guy. Like that's just it, that's just not the case here. And I, I'm actually really I feel very bullish on Doug Peterson actually being the right guy to sort of unlock that, which does include as part of that reasoning that he's just like a nice guy. Competent is well, yeah. Competent. The bar is the, nice the bar dude. is hell. <laughs> um, I also think he's pretty creative though. I think like so again like you know I'm like ah, I don't know about this group of skill players. I don't know how they all blend together, but like. I don't know. I think he, the tight ends are interesting. Evan Ingram obviously was not what 
at, was not as advertised, yeah. right, with his draft status, but he's still incredibly athletic. Uh, he does drop the football, but he's fast. Uh, Dan Arnold, I thought, looked pretty decent last year when healthy, and they've got a couple blocking tight ends behind them. And then, like, ETN and James Robinson is such a potentially fun pair of backs. Yeah. I want to see them both on the field. I want to see Peterson confusing defenses to get mismatches uh, just to make life easier for Trevor Lawrence over the middle of the field. And I think he can. I think, you know, this is something that is totally within his wherewithal. I do have some concerns about the offensive line as a whole, the tackle position in particular. But like you said, if we're, if the goal here is just like competence and improvement, I, I firmly believe that they can achieve that. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, this doesn't solve the tackle issues in a super meaningful way, but we know they will use a lot of extra linemen. They will use multiple tight end sets. They will yeah. help those guys out. They drafted, you know, the one player who wasn't on defense who they drafted was Luke Fortner in the third round. Um, I, I am not going to tell you that I can tell you anything about Luke Fortner from watching two hours of Jags camp in in shirts <laughs> and shorts. But I think they're excited there just at least in terms of what that means for for depth and the ability to to run that scheme. So, you know, again, like the bar is so low here, but... I think they will clear it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, the Fortner thing is interesting just because outside of Sheriff, the interior of that offensive line, um, you know, they lost Brandon Linder, who was their center, right. who was, you know, probably their best offensive lineman. So, um, you know, there's some uncertainty there. But, like, I think given what we talked about at the beginning, which is kind of Trevor's pocket management, I'm I'm more concerned about the skill players and than his protection because I think he is pretty good at uh, managing a muddy pocket. So... Yeah, I feel good. I um, wrestle a bit more with the defense. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. very bad defense last year. Um, I would pin most of that on, I mean, the past defense was secondary, had so many problems. Very interesting team building approach here. 3,000 linebackers brought in. Um, <laughs> yep. They signed Darius Williams, who I believe is going to play slot for them with Shaquille Griffin and Tyson Campbell on the outside yeah how do you feel about like what let me let's start here actually the, the first overall I should probably start here the first overall pick Trayvon Walker what do you think <laughs> yeah I mean I didn't love the pick it's not the pick that I would have made but I'm certainly not not gonna be here and tell you that I don't think that he'll be a useful player for them. Um, the other Josh Allen uh, has has been, you know, such a delight for them that I think those two opposite each other, that could end up being pretty nice. Um, y- you mentioned all of the linebackers. I do think that there's something, like, there, there's something about this collection of players, just I think particularly there's some real weaknesses at safety and, and in some places that I worry about, but this collection of players does make some sense to me when you consider that Mike Caldwell is coming from Tampa, you know, the off ball linebackers are Mm. so important. Yes. They have so many of those guys. You can kind of like go through and, and see how this is like a, a, bargain bin sorry to be mean no offense to the defensive of the Jacksonville Jaguars but like version of that in a lot of ways like I think Roy Robertson Harris is is quietly pretty good he kind of reminds me of of like a William Golston 
you can kind of see how they could have that like a, a good rotation up front and be able to operate like sort of similarly. I'm just there's some places where it's like I'm just not sure the talent is there, but I I get the concept, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that in this front seven, um, you know, the, for a long time with Josh Allen, who's had kind of some inconsistent games, but has also had like incredible games. Problem has been there's no one else to rush the passer. Clavin right. um, Chase on just hasn't been what they had hoped for. So I think Walker, who I imagine they're going to have standing up most of the time in this scheme. I think is, I, I agree. Yeah. So that's that I think. Um, could help unlock Josh Allen a lot. I think, you know, they brought in like, there's a lot, some like under the radar signings, like Arden Key, you know, who was really good in San Francisco. I yeah. think they're going to use both inside and outside. Foley Fadukasi from the Jets at defensive tackle was a really, really nice pickup. And then with all these linebackers, I, your point about the Bucks is really good, you know, and I think it's not 100% clear to me, like, okay, who's going to be the David? Who's going to be the White? Whatnot. But they're all athletic. You know, like they're young, right. they're fast. Um, Foya Olakun is like good, you know, decent coverage. <laughs> I just downgraded myself. Um, but, you know, he's a good tackler. Uh, Devin Lloyd is pretty well-rounded as well and is also pretty faint, fast, and rangy. I think there, you can see the beginnings of something new as long as one of those guys performs well for them. Yeah, and, and you just, you have to imagine that they're going to be really attacking, like they're going to, there's going to be a lot of blitzing. There's going to be a lot of five-man fronts. And, and you can look at them and go like, okay, they have guys. Like, they have guys to do that with. They they have a little bit of depth in the front seven. Yeah. And so schematically, I, I think it there are nice fits. There are certainly question marks, right? Like, you know, even, even Lloyd, right? Like, you never know. Um, so I don't want to say that I'm selling them super high in this way on just like pure talent, but there are pieces and I think they match, match the scheme pretty nicely. Yeah. I think that there's a lot less depth in the back end. Um, yeah, you talked definitely. about the safety, you know, duo. So, um, Andre Cisco was like in urban Myers doghouse last year as a rookie. Um, his play you know, time his, is, is finally increasing. There was, yeah. Oh my God. Yes. There, I, well, Urban said it was increasing and it, he didn't play or it something, was not, right? It was like some kind of... Experience. Narrator, it was not increasing. Jesus. Well, anyways, I liked him at Syracuse. Real ball hawk. Um, I think it's a little unclear who you want to play next to him between Andrew Winger and Rashawn Jenkins. And I, my expectations for the defense are not great, but I think if Walker, Lloyd, or Cisco, if like two of those guys look like core pieces you're feeling pretty good as a Jags fan yeah I, I think that's right I think uh, the safeties are scary like you know Cisco jokes aside um those guys were liabilities um yeah. like Jenkins and Wingard were liabilities in coverage last season and, and just did not tackle well uh, again I think Cisco is going to play a lot probably um in Wingard's place but I think you're still left with certainly questions there in general. And then also just like if somebody gets hurt, it, it starts to get pretty thin. Um, I will say a lot of Tyson Campbell hype in that building right now. Really? Yeah. A lot of Tyson Campbell hype. And, it, and he played pretty well towards, um, I think, the end of last season. There, there were 
he had some moments, but like Doug Peterson is very, very excited about him. Very excited. Like I, I sort of can't express how excited. Yeah. I think, especially if the scheme is a little bit less Baltimore-y, um, yeah. you know, a little bit less aggressive and a little bit less man, I think that if they can protect these cornerbacks a little bit more, yeah, I think you could definitely see them take a leap forward. Um, take a leap forward. That is the theme of the 2021 Jaguars. Take a step back. Is that the theme of the Tennessee Titans? Yeah, that, uh, that unfortunately makes a lot of sense. Uh, where are we with this team? Where are we with the Titans? I mean, <laughs> sort of, I, I, this is the first year where I'm willing to just be like, all right, they have somehow managed, you know, they're 13 and four in one score games over the last two years, right? Like this is a team that has just like exceeded logical expectations for them so consistently that it's almost hard to be like, well, it ends now, but I do think it kind of ends now. I, I think like they're very old. Um, they were uh, fifth in snap weighted age last year, particularly on offense. I, I think, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but like they deserve some credit for seeming to be self-aware in terms of how they approached the off season and, and trying to make room for some younger players to get some experience going forward. But mm. I, I think this is going to be the year when they take a step back. I do not think that there is a repeat performance as the number one seed in the AFC coming. Yeah. Right. This was the, the team that, um, I guess like not the opposite of an analytics darling for a while. Um, yeah. To your point where like the underlying metrics were like, they're not that good, but then they would win a lot, which by the way, I think speaks to the coaching, Mike Vrabel, all, when, you, when you're out totally. performing that way. Um, and obviously battling tons of injuries as well. Um, but to your point, you know, they decided not to extend Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry. And then they traded AJ Brown. All of that sent a message, which is we are not all in on this season right we're not trying to clear cap space we're not we're going to go younger at right receiver I don't like that they did that not the the Tannehill and Henry stuff I still would have kept AJ Brown personally tried to find a way um especially knowing what they offered him which was a real lowball offer I believe yeah like 20 million dollars a year or something um I like Traylon Burks I think the likelihood that he becomes AJ Brown is not great but, um, you know, it's not totally illogical when, like you say, when you look at it in whole. Um, that said, they're not going to suck this year. <laughs> like, this is still a good team. Um, you know, I, 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 like Ryan Tanhill is coming off of a down year punctuated, of course, by a, you know, pretty atrocious playoff performance. So people have a bad taste in their mouth. But he wasn't terrible. It was, you know, he struggled when pressured. He threw, he threw a lot more picks last year than previous years in Tennessee and I yep. think that was a big problem obviously again that was a big problem at the end but I think he's still a decent certainly above average quarterback um I loved the Robert Woods trade bringing him totally. in I thought was excellent fits really well with what they do on offense um which is you know a lot of play action obviously he's very run centric Robert Woods is an amazing blocker um and then Ryan Tannehill working sort of the middle part of the field I don't really know what to expect from Derrick Henry, though, at this point. And I think that is kind of just going to determine where this offense goes. Yeah, it, completely. That's I'm, I'm glad you said that because, uh, you know, we, we could go through the list and 
there's spots like right tackle that you that is an open competition. You sort of wonder where that's going and it could potentially be a problem. I think this offense is essentially going to go as Derrick Henry goes. And this is, you know, Derrick Henry is is the microcosm of, you know, the the um of Tennessee sort of winning the the analytics fraud award every year, I guess is what we would have to call it. But like he was averaging 27 carries per game before he got hurt last year, which is already probably unsustainable. And again, like people have been saying that what Derrick Henry does is unsustainable for a long time. And he has proven them and and me wrong. Many times. All all of you nerds, Derrick Henry has defied you. Um, Stuffed in a locker. However, from inside the locker, I'm going to bang on the door of the locker and say that that man, he had a Jones fracture in his foot. He was not great in the playoff game when he came back. He was already less efficient in 2021 than 2022, but was facing more stacked boxes. So it's a little like it's sort of hard to parse that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am inside the locker saying I just I I, I think this is if I had Mm -hmm. to guess I would say this is it and this is where Derrick Henry's efficiency like does take a sort of meaningful dive and if that happens I do think that this offense has has serious problems just because they run through him and I don't think while I like a lot of the the other skill guys I don't think that they have a group that can you know cover up for that well I am outside the locker where Derrick Henry is on my dynasty team in my league with mm. Danny Kelly and Nate Tice. And I disagree with you, nerd. Um, Ouch. Who knows? Maybe, maybe getting a little less wear for the tear will help him this season. I think also probably um, better run blocking might help. So you would need, you know, Taylor Luan to return to form a little bit. You talked about the competition on the right side. Um, and then, you know, I, I could see them spelling him a little bit more. I know they drafted someone whose name escapes me right now. Um, but this is a team that still ran the ball a lot. You remember when Derrick Henry, Henry went out and ran it pretty well, um, not as well. So I don't think there's any reason to believe that philosophy is going to change regardless of how much they do or don't use him. But I think like the ceiling of this team is obviously a lot higher if he is healthy and well and running well. Um, Titans fans, I really like your defense. I'm excited about yeah. this defense. Sam, I think they could be really same, good. Sam. Okay, good. I'm glad you feel that way. I, yeah, I think that is, to me, if this team is going to get back in the playoffs, I think the defense is going to be right. Um, so, I mean, just starting with the front, we talked about our last memory of Derrick Henry being him collapsing. Our last memory is of this defense stuffing Joe Burrow into another locker, just absolutely obliterating the Bengals, granted the Bengals offensive line. Um, but right. it's a unit that like really came together. I think as the year went along, you saw Jeffrey Simmons emerge as a total superstar. I thought Danico Autry was fantastic for them, but Dupree was coming off an injury. So there's reason to believe he'll be better this year. And then of course, Harold Landry had the career year that got him paid. Nora, what's not to like about this group? Yeah, uh, very little. I'm, I'm, I'm super high on them as well. I, I think in particular as, as Shane Bowen got more responsibility last year, he did really, really well with, with it. Uh, you know, some of it did like we'll talk about the back end and and just particularly what that safety group can give them. But they started using a lot more too high, running a lot less man. It was sort of like, you know, more Fangio, less Belichick kind of. And right, I, which I think was the identity really... of this team for a while. Right. I mean, this is New England South. So, yeah. Right. 
Um, and, and I think that was really effective and there's no reason to think that that doesn't continue this season. Um, mm. The pass rush, like it, it, one of the reasons that happened, um, you know, I guess the second reason other than I think um, by using a lot more too high, he kind of just unlocked the the scales of the guys um, on the back end. But uh, we've been asking for off seasons for years, like, when are the Titans going to get a pass rush? And I think a lot of those changes were really what helped them sort of unlock that. And yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you hope that stays consistent. You would imagine they get more than six games out of Bud Dupree and that maybe there's, there's something there. Um, the one big question mark is the cornerbacks because, you know, the safeties are fantastic. I, I, the corners have a lot of questions, but in general, I think they'd started to do really good things toward the end of last year. And I think there's very little reason why they can't sustain it. Yeah. Second least um, lowest rate of blitzing in the NFL, but the 10th highest pressure rate, which I think speaks to, again, those improvements uh, with that front. What are they calling them? Like the the law firm at some point with, yeah. Don't sleep on Autry, man. Autry, he was fantastic um, at points last season. So the back end is kind of the question mark. Um, They're really young. I think that's just kind of the corner. This is probably the youngest cornerback group in the league. So we know that the safety group duo of Kevin Byard and Amani Hooker are very good. Uh, not yep. That would put them behind Buffalo, but definitely one but of the like five just, best. Yeah. Yeah. The not so they cover up behind. a lot. Um, especially. Yeah. So I was pulling their coverage splits and true media doesn't have uh too high. I think sports and Philosophy does, but they had them playing the fourth most quarters in the league, which I thought was interesting. Um, and, you know, kind of, again, speaks to that safety duo's ability to kind of protect the corners a little bit more and make life a little bit easier for them. Um, yeah. But, you know, that said, I, so I, I thought Christian Fulton definitely showed some stuff. I guess I think showed yeah. some stuff. That's one of my phrases I say too much. But uh, I really like him. I really like Elijah Molden. I don't know who's going to play the, the third cornerback position outside. Uh, I guess it would be a battle between Caleb Farley, the oft-injured Caleb Farley, and then Roger McCreer, who they drafted this year and is known for both his ability to play at a high level in the SEC and his baby arms. So <laughs> it's, 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 down, it's down to them. But, but, I, don't, but I, you know, I, I feel like if the rest of the group is said, and I think it is, I'm not too concerned. Yeah, and, and you know, I think all four of those guys are going to play um, they'll play dime packages a fair amount. So like, yeah. I think they probably hope that it's Farley who ends up there, but like Roger yeah. McCreary is going to play. Um, and those two, I think are kind of your, your biggest question mark. Um, I don't know if I'm quite, you know, Molden is pretty steady in the slot. I that's, you know, you don't hate where you are there with him. Fulton was definitely much better last year than in 2020. I, I would love to see some more there. Um, I, I think ultimately that group is going to leave the safety group a fair amount to cover up. But to your point, I think they're capable of doing that. So um, overall, it's it's a group that excites me more in terms of the pass rush than the secondary. But there are some real things that are are going for the secondary as well. Yeah, you noted about 
the um, some of the schematic changes there. Um, so they played less man, but when they did play man, they were really good. Allowed the second lowest QBR in the league. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think like we're looking at this group and we're thinking they're very young, but like you said, the pass rush is going to help them assist a great deal. And also young players get better some of the time. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just really like them. Um, all right, let's take a quick break. Come back. This has been a very long podcast, obviously, because the news is at the top and talk about um, the two teams that I think most people have at the top and bottom of this division. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. And I have to say, speaking from experience recently, having tried it for the first time in Detroit, it is absolutely delicious. Right now, you can get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. The Texans. Uh, so, Nora, the question I kind of ask with every bad team in the NFL during this exercise is, what does success look like? So let me ask you that. What does success look like for the Texans this year? Uh, that's, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it looks like you win more than three or four games, honestly. I, I th- that helps. Like, the real answer to that question would, would be that they get to next off season or even like a year from now. And I can give you a clear answer as to what the direction of that team is. But I'm, I want to be honest that I don't really see a path towards doing that. They added a few interesting players, but they're all old. And I, I I don't know where that gets you other than, you know, probably pretty good draft position. I, that's a really they have a really interesting team building approach which is there are clearly like young guys on both sides of the ball that they want to build around potentially obviously you take Derek Stingley Jr. top of the draft Jalen Petrie out of Baylor at safety um but then the rest of the defense is, you know I mean like and, and this is true of the offense as well I'll get to that in a second it kind of looks like, all right, let's just get a bunch of competent NFL players to surround them, right? Uh, and then, like, on the other side, again, like, yeah, you have, well, you know, you got Davis Mills and Nico Collins. You drafted, I guess, Nico Collins would be sort of the young guy that they want to see what they've got. Uh, Kenyon Green, they drafted in the first round this year to play guard out of Texas A&M. But aside from them, Damian Pierce, uh, I think they got in the fourth round running back. But, you know, aside from them, it is a lot of just, like, vets that are kind of competent. 
um, which is interesting. I, you know, in some ways it's like, well, do you maybe just let's like rip it up more and see what you've got in a lot of different young guys. But it seems like their approach is let's try to get competent and then pick a few young players to see what we've got, which I don't know if that's the best approach, but I, I definitely, I kind of understand it, even if I'm not, if, I, if I'm not quite sure about it. But yeah, that's interesting because I, I have to be honest, like the more I looked at the Texans and, and just putting together notes for this and stuff, the more I was confused, like the less, you know, I went in with just sort of this idea in my mind of, well, they're trying to make it just a more constructive work environment, essentially, like they want to field a professional team and it's going to help their development. But let me read you the list of veterans that they have under contract in 2024. You ready? It is Brandon Cooks. That's it. End of list. Done. Wow. We have uh, so, and I don't think, and I, I would understand having, you know, your Jerry Hughes's and having guys like that in there if I felt like the young talent, like who the young talent is, was clear. But yeah. I'm not really sure who those guys are that they're saying we really need to just improve the infrastructure here because we need to give these guys a chance to develop. I, I mean, yeah. Stingley's very exciting, but that's a real, you know, uh, there's just a lot of unprovenness to that. And then I, I also, I, I was excited about him in the draft, but I'm a little bit confused about what that's going to look like. I mean, I know Lovey Smith has said that they will play a little bit more man coverage, but in, in general, oh, his defenses yeah. have been so zone heavy. I, I don't totally get why that's such a good fit. Um, and then obviously like Davis Mills had his moments, but I, I just don't think that that's the guy that you're doing this for. So I am, the more He's, I look at these yeah. guys, I'm le left with more questions than answers, frankly. Davis Mills is almost like a lot of these other he's he's not a veteran he's a rookie he's a second year not a rookie second year but um it it feels the same way you feel about a lot of these players that you know it's like okay let's see what we've got and just kind of try to make it through this season um you know I thought he played well last year the Patriots game was a fever dream I guess I can't believe that happened um <laughs> you know well relative I guess to the other rookies um he got a lot of praise for his deep passes and I think statistically finished pretty high but he didn't throw many it was mostly yeah. a pretty dink and dunk offense now I want to say that's not all Davis's Mil Davis Mills fault uh was not a good off I mean look Brandon Cooks is awesome like one of the stranger NFL careers and like one of the more underrated wide receivers of our generation but um you know like I I would say you know the offensive line was not good when no. guys played um, the run game was atrocious. They brought in Marlon Mack, which I thought was kind of an interesting signing. Yeah. Um, you know, I like Brevin Jordan, who's kind of like more of a move tight end out of Miami. So I guess when we're talking about like, who are the guys you build around? Maybe him. And then the offensive line, I think you could say, okay, with Tunzel, Kenyon Green, Titus Howard's been okay at tackle. So maybe we, you know, that there's, those are guys we might want around for a while, but I guess... I don't know if the goal here, I mean, I guess they want to see like, okay, it's Pep Hamilton being getting another coordinator job for the first time in quite some time after doing a kick-ass job coaching quarterbacks. I'll be curious to see 
what he brings to the table. Um, you know, sometimes with a defensive-minded head coach like Levy Smith, it's like, okay, well, is this going to be really conservative? Um, you know, are they going to try to run when they are not good at it, etc.? I think the strength of this team is probably Brandon Cooks, Nico Collins, and maybe Brevin Jordan. Yeah. So I think I want to see what Lovey does with that, and I think that'll go a long way towards determining how good Davis Mills is. But I think as a Texans fan, just to kind of wrap up the offense, you don't want Davis Mills, unless he takes a crazy leap and, you know, whatever. But I think you don't want him to be your quarterback in two years. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. But but in the meantime, I think you hope that Pep Hamilton, I mean, or if it's or if it's Levy Smith sort of um, making the final calls on what the offense looks like, but like whoever it is, you hope that they are not succumbing to like defensive coach yeah. syndrome and being super conservative because they were super conservative last year. You know, that there are, yeah. like, if you want to target some areas for them to grow, uh, they had the 12th highest run rate on early downs despite league-worst rushing DVOA on first downs yeah. and 31st-ranked do rushing DVOA on second downs last year. So, like, there's free money for you. Don't do that, well, and Ken- it'll be better. Hopefully Kenyon Green, who, you know, was seen as a very good run-blocking guard, can help in that respect, shoring up the right side, the left side of the line next to Tunsil. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, free Davis Mills – let him air the thing out. Maybe he fails, and, but and maybe, I mean, maybe he doesn't. Make, and like, maybe you get him outside the pocket a little bit too. Like there, there are a little bit more boot action might be good. There are things, there are schematic things where I feel like you could, could take, I don't know if they're meaningful steps forward or if it's just like any positive improvement is good. Um, if, you can sort of hear the the disillusionment in my voice that I'm just not sure where any of this is really going to get them. But like there's yeah. room to do good things there. And, and I think maybe he will do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree at all with their decision to stick with him rather than going after a quarterback this year. Um, we're just kind of talking about like yeah. this season and what success looks like. Um, you know, and I, by the way, I skipped over a bunch of defensive players. Like, I just got the depth chart up. Like, Jonathan Greenard was obviously maybe their best defensive player last year. Um, just looking at the defensive line, they bring in yeah. Rashim Green, who's like, you know, a young player out of Seattle. I think it was a second round draft pick. Um, and I think kind of got better as seasons went by. And I think at one point it was Seattle's sack leader. So Jerry Hughes is ageless, and, you know, you can count him, count on him for. Five and a half sacks I or love whatever he brings Hughes. to the table. Um, Obo Okoronkwo, again, I would say is very similar to Rasheem Green and the role he played with the Rams, where he was kind of like a you know a young player who did who was able to pressure the quarterback and get after it, but never really broke out entirely. And then at linebacker, um, they drafted Christian Harris out of Alabama, who at one point people thought was going to be like incredible, and then didn't really live up to that expectation. But I think you know they're trying to get younger there. Um, so like there's there's guys that I think could be on this team Jonathan in a few Owens years. At safety, they you know is that isn't that Simone Biles's? Yes, Mister Simone Biles, or boyfriend or Who something. Had, no, I, I think they're married. He, he had a pick. Uh, I want to say like, was it in the Patriots game or there was one game where he? I don't think maybe he had more than yes. one interception. Yeah. but there was one interception. No, I think you're right. Where I think we had he made sports center and was like that's Simone Biles's husband. Her boyfriend. Um, 
Yes. Yeah, safety is not great here. Although I do love he's, Petrie. He had a decent year. Like, he had a decent season. He was pretty good last year. I think I'll be curious to see. You talked about Lovey Smith and whether or not they'll play more man with Derek Stingley Jr., who is good at both man and zone, but is very special at man as a press man corner. Um, I'll be curious to see how they use Jalen Petrie, who was a Swiss Army knife type player at Baylor, um, is not really your like rangy center fielder type safety. But so like you think Lovey, you think too high, Tampa two rather. It doesn't, I think you want him in the box a fair amount. So I'll be curious to see whether or not, like how Lovey Smith yeah. deploys him as well. This, this is a lot of pressure on Lovey. Like, you know, like let's, you're, you've got some interesting young players. Let's see what you do with them. I'll just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. I'm like, so I think if you walk just... away feeling good about Petrie, Stingley Jr., one of the past rushers, that's success. And then Kenyon Green. Uh, okay. And I guess Nico, we, we skipped over Nico Collins. I think, you know, he was injured a lot last year. But if you feel good about him, too, you feel good as a Texans fan. You just want, like, six players <laughs> that you're like, this yeah. is our future. Um, okay. That's the Texans. Do you have the Colts winning the division? Yes. Most people do. Yeah. It seems fair. I, th- I think it's fair. pretty pretty clear. Um, Not a perfect team. Some issues. Notably, well, let's start on the offense. Cool. I love the Matt Ryan trade. I have been on the record saying he is not washed. <laughs> I'm post- clips of him climbing the pocket i love exploding. it exploding um now he links up with frank reich the colts offensive line is not perfect to my point uh i don't quite know who's playing left tackle i'm guessing it's not bernard raymond yet it's probably matt Pryor. yeah but That's, yeah matt ryan is coming from the gates of hell so <laughs> i think relatively it's going to be great. I also think he's going to make the offensive line look a lot better. Because totally he's with the ball, unlike Carson Wentz. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, so his on-target percentage throwing to Falcons receivers, Falcons receivers last season. And, you know, it's, it's Matt Ryan's on-target percentage, but who he's throwing to still matters. Like, that's the trouble with football statistics. They're all, everything is codependent. It was 78%. Carson Wentz's in this offense was 72. I think you take that. I, I think yeah. I, I would, there are probably more flowery statements that I would make about what kind of upgrade it is for them to go to Matt Ryan here, but like it will be a clear improvement. And I totally agree with you that I think he will help this offensive line, which obviously has some, some real talent and a very good history with a lot of the guys in this group, but has sort of been like creeping down. I, I feel pretty good about, most things on this offense other than wide receiver depth is sort of the the one thing where it's like behind yeah. Michael Pittman, Zach Pascal's gone, T.Y. Hilton isn't signed, they don't have Jack Doyle anymore. So it's sort of like you Alex really need Pierce Paris Campbell to be and healthy. Paris Campbell. You need him to stay healthy and yeah. be just like really good in the slot. Cause there's very little else there. And that is, that is the thing that like stops me from 
being yeah. really, really hyped up about this offense. And it's it's important for Matt. I mean, we know what a Matt Ryan offense is going to look like with Frank Reich, right? Like it's totally. he's gonna it's going to be he's going to be a point guard. Uh, they're going to use a lot of play action. Um, he's going to throw in that intermediate middle area of the field, which is sort of where he makes his bread and butter. And I could see um, Michael Pittman Jr. thriving there. Alec Pierce is kind of Me this too. big speedster. Um, you know, Matt Ryan can also, by the way, he's not great at throwing a deep anymore, but he can, he can deliver at times. But yeah, it's just, you know, it feels like there's, they have like a, it's like a lot of maybe twos, you know, and I'm not sure Michael Pittman Jr. is a one. Um, but that might not matter because they have the best running back in football, who we should probably acknowledge right now, Jonathan Taylor. <laughs> and a crazy yeah. good running group. Did you know that they had Philip Lindsay on this team? I, I yeah, so I miss that. I, yes, but I had the exact same reaction. <laughs> Damn. And Naheem Hines, who's great. What a great group totally. of running backs. Really, really good. And, you know, again, like, the line is not all it used to be cracked up to be. I don't know if I needed to say both used to be and cracked up to be, but whatever. It's done now. Um, they can still block. Like, they're they're still okay. This is not a, a deficiency. So I, I think you can expect that to be a pretty, like, that's a strength. That's a clear strength. Yeah. And that's that's good. I'm a little less optimistic about the defense, but I have gone back and forth a few times. Um, so I want to talk about it with you as we kind of wrap this team up and the division. They bring yeah. in Gus Bradley. Yeah. And that is... I'm very excited to hear you. T- my... I, I want to hear your take on this so badly. I have a lot well, of... We might have similar feelings, but a lot know, of my feelings li- are Gus Bradley oriented. I've lived that experience. He is the last defensive coach to use the Pete Carroll system, including Pete Carroll, who has embraced the Fangio system. <laughs> um, which we know from watching the Raiders last year, where he was the coordinator. Ton of cover three, more cover three than anyone in the NFL. Very little blitzing, right? Um, now, with the Raiders, that succeeded at times because he had a very good four-man rush with Max Crosby and Unique Ngakwe. Um it did not succeed at times, however, because the secondary was bad. In that system, you also have to have good cornerbacks. And Patrick Mahomes lit them on fire literally every time they played. So now you go to Indianapolis, which uh, before with Matt Eberflus had that cover two century system. And it wasn't like wildly different, though, by the way. And it's a different group of players. You have up front, Quiddy Pay, Grover Stewart, DeForest Buckner, also Unique Ngakwe. And in the back... Julian Blackman and I guess either Rodney McLeod or well, who's is Kari Willis potentially mm-hmm. going to play. And then Stephon Gilmore, who they bring in. Or it's, it's, or it's Nick Cross, who they drafted. Oh, who they drafted. The Maryland kid. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Kenny Moore, who they bring in. Who, or not bring in, pardon me, who's a very good slot corner. And then uh, I guess maybe Isaiah Rogers or the guy from the Raiders. And then a linebacker, you have Darius Leonard, who's still dealing with some kind of weird injury stuff. And Bobby Okarike. I see it could work. Like, if Quiddy Pay, Quiddy Pay is not Max Crosby, but the Raiders didn't have DeForest Buckner, right? So who right. eats up so many double teams that there are opportunities if Unique Ngakwe is plays that speed rusher on the outside, which is again right. what that four three under uh, front looks like. Quiddy Pay, you could see having a lot of one on ones. I see it. 
I just am a Buckner, little like bit those worried. two kind of power rushers. I, I think that's a nice compliment, actually. I think that'll Yeah. That element I I like. I just worry a little bit about the secondary. They have kind of good players, though. I don't know. As I was saying all their names, you know, most of the positions are pretty set. Maybe second safety and second corner are issues. But, like, you know, I don't think Stefan Gomer have any problems in that cover three-centric defense. Um, I don't know. It, I guess it's less the personnel and more like, are we really doing this still in 2022? <laughs> You know, like, even if your players are good, they're still going to get ripped up because offenses have gotten so good at attacking this kind of defense that you would like to see some change, especially with the players at his disposal. Yeah, that that's sort of exactly, that's exactly my, my feeling, is that I'm just not sure that that cover three defensive style really works that well anymore. Um, it, it's not something that, like, I don't totally get the logic of sort of choosing to adopt it, but that's happened. Like that, that's the world that we're dealing in. And I I think if you start to look at it, like the pieces do kind of fit together, you know, Leonard's that like rangy linebacker. I do think that Steph Gilmore, like can, he can take away a side of the field pretty well. He's not like, I don't think he's going to have, like his absolute best season for them. and uh, But he's a he's still a good player. I, th- I thought he proved that last year. And I think that pass rush group is going to be able to get a decent amount of pressure without blitzing a lot. And those are kind of the key ingredients well, for that, right? Like, Yeah. But the other thing we should note is the division, which we've just been talking about, is a division that is right. going to try to run the football a lot. So they're not in the – I mean, it'll be suck when they play the AFC West, but they're not in the AFC West. So this, you they know, are, scheme actually kind of works for their opponents. They are not the, and then it, it, like, and just generally, right? Like they are not, the Colts to me do not belong in like the AFC elite, but they belong in mm. the AFC South elite. Mm. Yeah. I think for them to be in the AFC elite, um, Michael Pittman Jr., two things happen. Michael Pittman Jr. has to break out, which is possible. Yep. And then I think Quiddy Pay has to break out. So that then where you've got that four man rush that's just ferocious. Possible. Possible. I, I, I also think that <laughs> with this deep <laughs> Yeah. I, I I think that's right. I also think that like Gilmore would be the most likely person to do it. Um Gilmore yeah. or another corner would have to have not like the best season ever, but a really good year. Yeah. I think Colts, at least one um, of those guys has to be playing pretty pretty darn well. The Colts had the second most, or probably third most interceptions in football last year. And their opponents dropped the most passes. That's usually not good for the future because those things tend to regress. But the personnel, the players have changed. Gilmore... I liked Rocky Essen, but Gilmore, I think, will be, you know, he can probably add to that interception total a little bit. They get the ball, football, or probably, ugh, they get the football a lot because Darius Leonard is very good at stealing the football from people. Yeah. Mm. And I do believe oh, maybe- in the, in this, there's a systematic approach to doing that there, too, which is, you know, and, and part of it is because they've, they've played a decent amount of zone, so you can yeah. have eyes on the football pretty easily, but like, 
there is something to be said for the fact that they have prioritized that in every practice and you know the some of the staff has changed obviously but like that's just been such a big thing there is really practicing to try to and I know it's usually fluky but to be a really interception oriented defense is something that they I know they've they've made a real point of doing for years now and I think to some extent that does matter hmm. yeah and some of these stats again are about the opponent right like when I said they, they've their opponents had the most drop passes well we just talked about the Jaguars <laughs> of this, so probably right <laughs> why um yeah I've got the close winning division we'll see about the AFC and where they stack up there I, I think for me it's kind of like I'll have a better sense of that after their first four weeks or so of the season so Colts fans don't get mad we had you win the division don't get mad relax all right as always we wrap with dinks and dunks and now it's time for dinks and dunks I'm getting paid for this right five questions for our guest four from me one from Lenny Nora are you ready I'm so ready I'm so excited well, now I feel bad because the first question is a bummer. Um, Tim Patrick, Broncos wide receiver, who I talked about on my podcast with Ted Wynn and how excited I was for him and what a great fit I thought he was for Russell Wilson. <sighs> Towards ACL today. Question for you is how bad do you think this is for the Denver Broncos? It's not good, but I don't think – like. My basic philosophy of the Broncos is literally just if Russell Wilson is one good, but two, like if they can find a harmony in just how he wants to play and what they want to do, they are going to be very good. And that like that challenge that I just described, I don't know how you do that. And several offensive coordinators in, in Seattle have also struggled with this concept in, in various ways. It is one of the great mysteries of the NFL. But if they can find that, that's a pretty talented skill group. I, I think they will be okay. I think the secret sauce is has much more to do with kind of how they can get yeah. Russ to buy into what they want to do schematically, buy into what he wants to do schematically, more so than it has to do with Tim Patrick, though I feel very bad for Tim Patrick, who seems very nice. That's part of the reason why I'm so excited to watch this Denver team is just to see what Same. it looks like. You know, I just like, I'm like, let's see. Okay. Nathaniel Hackett is smiling and everything's great. He's happy. He reminds me of young Pete Carroll. All that's happening. But let's, let's see what it looks like. And along those lines, question number lines, question number two, which week one revenge game are you most looking forward to? Denver versus Seattle. I think, by the way, different people would have views on who's revenging who there. Um... <laughs> Cleveland versus Carolina. So this is only a revenge game if Baker Mayfield wins the starting job, which I've said I think he should. Or the Chargers versus the Raiders. This would be, of course, revenge for the tie fiasco of Week 18 that kept the Chargers out of the playoffs. Yeah, so it's definitely Chargers-Raiders, even though, like, I guess the revenge thing is a little bit hazy. But you gave it to me, so I'm going to choose it. One, I think that's pretty clearly the best game. Two... The, the non-tie was like one of the mo- that was just like a, a delightful strange fever dream Insanity. and I'm so excited Insanity. To, to revisit it I'm yeah, excited, very excited to see for that it. if are they gonna go for it in this game just oh my god there's just so many opportunities <sighs> so for jokes and that is what I live for I also like 
I'm like, I, I don't, I'm very curious to see the Raiders. The Raiders are one of these teams where I just feel like the, the, the um, scope of outcomes is super wide. Oh, yeah. Although I, well, I kind of think they're going to be bad. I don't know that Josh McDaniels is going to do a wow. good job, even though I think, wow. whatever. I, I'm like dying to get out of the Raiders are going to be bad take. Well, um, I, yeah, I mean, this is the best football game of the three. Clearly, yeah, but it's these are both the teams game. that should be contenders. But come on, Baker, Baker. Gonna yeah. be, I mean, just the story. So I mean, you know what, though? Ugh, it's gonna be like, what if the the way the announcers talk? I don't know. Actually, now that I think, yeah, that, I, I, I want to. That is the game where I most want to watch the maligned quarterbacks post game press conference if they win. The game oh itself is a little bit less exciting to me for a variety of reasons. So Baker's done like a pretty good job of not saying things lately, but I know, but you I, know, he wants to, Oh, he's please, please. It's if they like, win, I'm just dying please. to be like the Raiders are trash and Baker Mayfield <laughs> is like dying to say things. He is. It's going to be amazing. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm excited for all three games. Um, you mentioned Josh McDaniels. So uh, that's interesting to me because you cover the Patriots. So you have more insight into that than most. Um, but my question, next question is about the Patriots. On a scale of, I'm trying to think, one through 10, how worried are you about the offensive coordinator situation? Um, I, I think probably like a, a six. But to break that down... It's because I think as long as Belichick is there and, and this is not to say that like he can do no wrong and the, and the coaching staff there is unimpeachable because I actually think that the, the amount of just sort of brain drain that's gone on there is really, really, really significant to them. But I do think that like, as long as certain people, namely Bill are in place, he can cover up for a lot of deficiencies so that's why it's not like a 10. I think Matt Patricia being your offensive coordinator, like the way that I will phrase it and and what I can say is reflective of everyone that I've talked to, no one has a reason why it's going to be good. People can sort of equivocate about like, eh, well, it might not be so, like might not be so bad. Honestly, the only good reasoning for it that I've heard anyone say was from Steven Ruiz on our show last week, who was like, he's going to teach Mac Jones to see the game through the eyes of a defensive player. And I was so like, the what? Most optimistic, that's the most optimistic reading of the situation possible. It's, just, it's also the most optimistic Steven Ruiz has ever been. But like, that's yeah. the only thing I've, I've heard. I, I, I don't think that that's good. I think that's distinctly bad, actually. I saw somewhere. So I mentioned in the AFC East podcast that the Patriots are reportedly trying to run more of an outside zone running game, the Shanahan style offense. And I saw somewhere yeah. that's not going well. Where did I see that? Oh God. I wish I could give credit to the reporting, but, um, oh, here it is. Uh, okay. This was Greg Bedard. Let ah. the record show that the Patriots first padded period using the Shanahan run scheme was an abject disaster among <laughs> the worst I've seen covering the league. Yikes. Well, we'll see. I don't know. I, I yeah. think, I mean, on the flip side, to add some degree of optimism, people who have been at, at training camp there say that Devontae Parker's looked really, really good. Yeah. And Devontae I Parker do hype. think that in general, 
it does seem, you know, they don't have a fullback, right? Like they've eliminated that position from their offense. And it does yeah, seem fascinating. Like Bill just said, like, it's it's time for us to modernize a little bit. You know, they they trade away Chase Winovich and decide that they get smaller linebackers now and they're going to change up the offense and he's going to say nice things about players and it, it's a whole new era. And I do think that they were in need of some modernization. I just don't think that the the crops of players that they were getting in drafts, I think a big part of why they've struggled in the draft so much is that they're, they're just drafting for positions where the talent pool is smaller because it's just not how the modern game is. Mm. And so I, I think that is largely good. Now, obviously if they're just incapable of implementing it, that's another issue, but I'll give them more than one terrible practice to try to, to shake things yeah. up a little bit. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not freaking out. I think they've got good players. So, um, all right. Question four. I forgot to do this last week. I skipped over with Charles. Um, I like to ask people for content recommendations. I will go first. I finally watched the movie, everything everywhere all at once, which was not just like incredible and interesting and wrestled with like good ideas, but also just like really entertaining. Have you seen it, Nora? I still haven't seen it. No, I, I, I would like to. I, so I like fall asleep now constantly during movies or just kind of look at my phone or whatever. You, I was like dialed in to this. Um, I won't spoil it for anyone, but yeah, it's really, really good. And I highly recommend it. And then the other show I've watched, we just finished, is Slow Horses on Apple, which is based on a detective novel or maybe a detective series and series of tech novels. Uh, it is about a, basically a, uh, office that where mi5 mi6 mi6 right mi6 sends um either yes. agents who have screwed up or agents who they want to blame for things kind of without getting into details anyways it is extremely good i i'm already pumped for season two um you should definitely check it out if you haven't already it is mi5 what the hell? Why am I saying MI6? Oh, Gary Oldman oh, is amazing. Yeah, I thought it was MI6 MI too. Five. I thought it was MI5. That sounds completely wrong to me, but I try. But I. Am I MI5? MI5? MI5 versus MI6. Hold on. MI5 is often referred to as the security service. MI6 deals with current affairs overseas. Oh. Huh. So that would okay. be the bond. MI6 would be the bond one, I guess. All right. Anyways. Okay. Um, I, I can't offer any good like television or movie recommendations right now because um, I'm watching Game of Thrones for the first time in the year of our Lord 2022. So everything that I'm going through is probably not a good recommendation because people did this a long time ago. Um, I'm in season six. I'm having a great time. Uh, oh, wow. The one that I will give is I'm reading Stanley Tucci's book, which is called Taste. And it is so <laughs> delightful. Like, it is just so delightful, Mina. I can't even, it's it's sort of like a, a cancer memoir a little bit, but it's a lot about food and he's just delightful. And I love Stanley Tucci so much. Um, that's really fun. I highly recommend that. Nice. Uh, Ryan Clark is rewatching Game of Thrones. And if you notice, he's been tweeting about it. And everyone's like, so he's like I wow, have the, to- the hound. Wow. And everyone's like, why are you tweeting about this in 2022? So... I'm not rewatching it. I'm watching it. I'd never seen it because I'm really bad with violence. And um, I, hmm. I convinced my boyfriend to essentially like screen episodes for me and like tell me when not to look and we mute the TV and it's a whole thing. Um, 
but it's really fun to be a part of the zeitgeist, but I don't look at, I try to like not see anything because I've actually managed and I shouldn't say this because now people are going to spoil it for me, but like Mm. I've stayed pretty spoiler free. Um, but I, but I've, I've had to, it's actually been really healthy because I'm just like, I can't go on the internet. I can't do it because we have to make our way through game of Thrones. And this is my only opportunity to get there. It's how you avoid TV spoilers is wait five years to watch something and you're good. I think it's, that's the only answer. People used to... I, I got yelled at once for spoiling a major event in Game of Thrones that I will not be mentioning here because Thank I tweeted you. about it like a week after the episode. And I was like, dude, like, come on. This is the most popular show in America. Don't go on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, there have been a couple little things that have gotten spoiled and people have been like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I've just been like, hey, this is... I wouldn't worry about it. This one is pretty much on me. <laughs> um. So I think I'm lucky to have been like fairly clean. All right. Last question from Lenny. Um, his questions are pretty tough. I don't know if you're familiar with his uh, journalism style, but. Oh, I know. A little tough. All right. So, and he also does a lot of research. He knows that you're a huge Taylor Swift fan. Um, and so Lenny is very online and he recently read that Taylor Swift Ranks number one on the list of celebrities who pri- whose private jets emit carbon dioxide, and he wants to know why you hate the environment. <laughs> Lenny, it's harsh. Sorry. Ouch. Um, it's pretty bad, Lenny. I-, I I wish Taylor wouldn't fly so much. I don't know what else to tell you, buddy. Wow, wow, betrayal. Turning on Taylor. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Just no defense. Um. <laughs> not great i think all right nora people was like she lends it to her friends how is that better how is that better helps guys all right how is that better the theme of the afc south and also this week in the nfl nora thank you so much for joining the show thank you mina thank you